Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast, and we've got kind of a double-barreled episode for you. We are going to talk Pheasant Dogs, the book with Keith Crowley, and Bird Dogs for Habitat, which is an annual campaign uh, that runs in the month of April. Um, obviously, they're both connected. Uh, so we're going to tackle both conversations in this, in this podcast. But uh, as we get going, let me introduce our co-hosts for the episode. We have Jared Wickland, frequent contributor to On The Wing podcast and a featured uh, participant in the Pheasant Dogs book. Welcome, Jared. Good morning. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> and uh, also featured in a chapter of the Pheasant Dogs book and making her second appearance on On the Wing podcast is Rachel Horn. Yeah, thanks again for asking me to join. And without further ado, the author of Pheasant Dogs, Keith Crowley. Aloha. The man, the legend. <laughs> oh, is that how you say? Is that how you say hello in Wisconsin? Uh, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> no, that's where's the beer? <laughs> no, it's always good to be here. I'm I'm glad to be back, and it's it's fun to be. Uh, well, you don't live too far away. No, no. Although you did move, a li- you were right north. over the border in Hudson, and you moved further north. Yeah, up to up to a lake. I can't complain. We're on a lake up in way Bayfield County, way northern Wisconsin. So, oh, really? Yeah. How close to Lake Superior are you? Thirty miles, close enough to get the lake effect snows. Let's I was, was going to say when you mentioned Bayfield and Lake, I was going to say, is it a a lake or the lake? The lake. <laughs> yeah. No, we're not on Superior. Okay. No, we're on a, a small chain south, southern Bayfield County. I, I can't wait to come up and catch some walleyes sometime with you. I just invite. <laughs> me you too. Let me know if you find any. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to still. So as we're recording this, it is, um, a, you know, the last few days of March. There's got to still be snow up where you oh, are. Oh God, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. how? I mean, you, are we still talking feet of snow in northern no, Wisconsin? No, no. It's it's down to. Pro, well, it's hard to tell because it's so crusted over. There are places where you can post hole into eighteen inches of snow in the woods. There's yeah. lots of snow. Yeah, plenty. And every all the roads, all the side roads are icy. You know, highways are fine, but you know everything else is terrible and there's still plenty of ice on the inland lakes there sure is yeah we're not showing any open water at all yet although lake superior i gotta imagine is free of ice at this point yeah not the bay i mean shawamigan bay which is up by me is that'll be they're still ice fishing that and they will be probably well into april so yeah spring is coming but not fast enough it's been a long winter it has it has been a long winter well as we look out the window in the twin cities we are almost free of snow um so there is hope on the horizon for for you even in the Northwoods. absolutely it's coming it's just taking its (laughs) sweet time (laughs) well let's let's start with um how this project well, uh, let, let me back up. Let, for folks that don't know you, let's um, give them your short history because you've written other books before. You're, you know, one of the things that I've known you. Well, the two things that I think about when I think Keith Crowley, I think uh, really um, a professional photographer that's used a ton in American Hunter magazine, right? Yeah. The, yep. the NRA's publication. Your your images are 
all over that publication. Yeah, I just I have a cover coming out. I think next month. So yeah, the, the and, and everything from elk to grizzlies, bears. To, yeah, lots of bears, wolves, that kind of stuff. And then the other thing I think about is Gordon McQuarrie. Right. Uh, the great outdoors uh, writer from Wisconsin. You wrote book. You've written his biography. Right. Yep. I I did his biography. It came out in two thousand three. That was pre, all of my research was pre-internet, so it really took five, six years of digging around in archives and microfilms, and it was a long, long process, but well worth it. That guy deserves all the kudos and accolades he can get, so. Yeah, he's from the, what, the Nash-Buckingham yep, era? exactly, yep. yeah. He's most famous for his stories of the old Duck Hunters Association, that's kind of a misnomer because he hunts grouse and he hunts mm-hmm. he hunts pheasants and he fishes for muskies and these stories that he wrote for all the periodicals, the big ones, Field and Stream, Sports of Field, Outdoor Life, back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He died young. He died in 56 at the age of 56. So he his uh, life was cut short, and we missed out on a lot of fine writing I'm sure he would have produced. The uh, I remember the first time that I met you um, was at the Outdoor Writers Association of America up in Duluth, Minnesota. They right. had their annual conference. A couple of years ago, And yep. you gave kind of a historical biography on him, which um, I found to be very, very interesting. Uh, just all the all the different life quirks and things that he had. Sure. Um, and just how much of an outdoorsman uh, that he was. Well, he kind of created the – he was the mold. Uh, he was the first – full-time professional outdoor writer in the country when he got hired in 1936 to, to write about hunting and fishing for the Milwaukee Journal. Huh. Nobody else had that as a full-time job up to that point. Now, I've heard stories that there was someone in Ohio, but nobody can ever give me a name. So I'm sticking to my guns. <laughs> Gordon McQuarrie was the first full-time outdoor writer in America. Everybody else dabbled in it. You know, Hemingway and Robert Ruark and those guys all started out writing for newspapers, and there was some outdoor literature in newspapers, but nobody, that wasn't their job description. Hmm. Go write about hunting and fishing. For Macquarie, that was it. That was his sole job description is tell us about hunting and fishing. And he had a huge audience. I mean, gigantic. He was one of the best-known writers in America at the time. So if you go back and you pick up a uh, let's say 1942 issue of Field and Stream, they'll have the featured authors on the cover, and his name's always mm-hmm. there. And I have one copy of one magazine. I don't remember which issue it is, but you've got Hemingway listed, you've got Robert Ruark listed, you've got, uh, I think it was Russell, Annabelle, and Gordon McQuarrie. Mm-hmm. So really? that's, the, that's the level that he was at back then. So, and it's been my pleasure to kind of keep it alive, keep his memory alive. He's, you know, he's been gone for 60 some years. So is the connection for you, the Wisconsin roots? You're, you're originally from, no, I'm from Minnesota originally. So okay. yeah, I'm from, I was born in Osseo, Minnesota. Oh, that's right. Cause of yeah. the Z, yeah, it's, we have mutual yeah. friends and I, I, yeah. Okay. So went, where's went the Wisconsin connect? <laughs> connection well you know uh hudson was a good choice because my wife worked for 3m at the time gotcha and she's worked there for 30 they're almost 30 years she just retired which is why we moved to the lake now (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but uh we actually honeymooned up in that area where Macquarie had his Mm. cabin up in bayfield county we went up and drove through that area and went boy we love it up here and bought a piece of property and we've been up there ever since okay so uh, I, I have Gordon McQuarrie to thank for, you know, for cluing me in on that part of the country. 
I've got a uh, or we we had a cabin up in up in that territory as well that we sold a couple of years ago. My family we were over in Douglas County, sure, so not, not too far away, but yeah. just beautiful area up there. I think a lot of history. And after we after we sold that place, what I think it's like spotted cow and lining kugels probably keeps <laughs> keeps me coming back to Wisconsin now. You know you can buy lining kugels in most states. I know, I know, but spotted just cow you can't go going over and touring it. The history there. Is so how do you get? Uh, how do you become a photographer? We mentioned that you you your well, work is used all over, including the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever publications. Right. Well, I started out writing, and this is right out of high school. I was I was doing some freelancing and selling stuff to different publications, and you guys produce a great magazine. You know that photos sell the magazines. Yeah. And so I kept hearing that from editors over and over again. We love your writing. Your writing is just fine. You're, you need to work on your photography. Hmm. And so I took some courses, and I took some college-level stuff on photography and did the darkroom business and all that stuff and discovered that I maybe I have a knack for it, but I sure love doing it. And it's probably half of my business now is, you know, half photography, half writing. Hmm. Yeah, and, and that's interesting. Like uh, you, different schools or different groups of people probably recognize you for either or, right? Like I first knew you as purely a photographer, right? right? And yeah. then you start learning a little more. Like, oh, okay, <laughs> he's the world's you know foremost expert on Gordon McCory. Yeah, I don't know about that, but yeah. <laughs> I spent some time looking looking into McCory. But you know, there are other people who've. Yeah. picked up that mantle and run with it i'll tell you there's some guys out there doing some there's a new macquarie book out that i had the pleasure of writing the forward for that mm. that is, you know took tons of research so well speaking of books we'll we'll transition to the a topic of the conversation which is rachel <laughs> well oh, yeah, no. <laughs> she'll be part She's of in it, it for sure yeah. uh but it, you've got uh, a book which is sitting in front of us and it's it's gorgeous and you wrote the entire thing and contributed contributed the majority of the photos although you can tell us a little bit about some of those are personal photos but the book we're talking about is pheasant dogs it uh it was launched late 2018 and it will be in every pheasants forever banquet package for autumn banquets 2019 and spring banquets 2020 right so the next fiscal year for pheasants forever chapters out there listening the pheasant dogs book autographed which were signed yep well they're almost signed (laughs) almost all of them are signed we started you started signing them uh right before the podcast you're about 350 the way through yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and there's 150 yet to go well it's you know i'm glad you brought that up because that was really important for me and for my publisher tom piero at wild river we wanted to, we donated books to for the chapters to auction off specifically because we want to benefit the habitat mm-hmm. you know it's not a necessarily books these days aren't necessarily a money-making venture uh, so to be able to give back to the resource, it was really critical, and we're so happy we were able to work this out with you guys to get chapter every every chapter get a copy of the book. So yeah, so so there's the big news. Every chapter will have a copy, autographed copy of Pheasant Dogs book in their banquet package coming up in the coming year. So let's talk about Pheasant Dogs, yeah. the book. Let's do. Um, it. How did how did this project? 
um, end up on your computer? Well, the idea for the project really was just from a telephone call I had with the publisher, Tom Pirro. I was talking with him actually about other fo elk photos, I think, because he was doing an elk book. And he happened to, we started talking about a book he had done a few years ago called A Passion for Grouse. Mm -hmm. And I had contributed one of the essays to that, to that book, and we were chatting about how that book had done in the marketplace and, and what kind of feedback Tom had gotten on the book. And he said, by far, the, the most positive feedback he got about that book, it, that book covered everything. It covered guns, it covered habitat, it covered the history. I mean, it was it had old writers, modern writers. It, it really ran it's the gamut. beautifully gamut. done. <clears throat> yeah, great big book, $100 book, you know, just a huge compendium of roughed grouse information. But he said the most feedback he got, the most positive feedback he got was on the dogs, mm. the dog section of the book. And he said you know, let's, what do you think about doing a dog book? And, and my hand shot up quicker than I could, you know, <laughs> quicker than I could move it. And I said, yes, absolutely, let's do a dog book. And I knew I had an archive of pheasant. I've been pheasant hunting since I was 12 years old. So mm. uh, <laughs> I had an archive of not only photographs, but stories and stuff and people I could talk to. So I said, let's do pheasant dogs. And he went, yep. There you go. So it was a five-minute decision on the phone. It took two years to put it all together to come, you know, from that conversation to this book sitting in front of us today. It took about two years. Hmm. But, uh, you know, it was that easy. When a publisher comes to you these days, as a, you know, I'm a small writer. When, when a publisher comes and says, you want to do a book for me, you say, yeah. <laughs> you don't even ask what the subject is. <laughs> Well, this, been, this subject happened it. to be something I, I enjoy. Yeah, and that, that's what I was just going to bring up is like it's, you know, when you're, when you're writing about a personal passion, and I say that a lot about us at Pheasants Forever who work here, you know, we're basically, we come to, come to work and carry out our passion for pheasant hunting and wildlife habitat every day. I mean, that must have been a pretty easy bridge for you to make um, easy, in, in writing easy, the book. I very mean, easy, yeah. I mean, it, what this book amounts to is conversations with people about pheasant dogs mm -hmm. what could be more natural what could be easier everybody will talk about their dog you can sit down with a lot of people and ask them about themselves and they're kind of reticent and they ham and haw but you ask them about their hunting dog and they've got stories so it was it was easy the interview portions of the book the the six months i took interviewing people that was super easy yeah and well, fun. I mean, really a pleasure. I never regret I, I never dreaded walking into a room and sitting down to talk about hunting dogs, ever. <laughs> the, f the fun piece is all three of us um, I have a chapter. You all in, have chapters. In, That's right. In They're the all infamous, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thank you. <laughs> and, and if uh, folks are listening and that are members, and hopefully you're a member of Pheasants Forever and you're listening, um, you will see the story of Rachel Hovland in the, the coming summer issue, which we just, we just reviewed yesterday. Yeah, just mm -hmm. uh, so, so there is a tease to the book in the summer edition that will be in the mail here shortly. Um, and this is a special, uh, special chapter in a variety of ways for Rachel because it was your first, or it is your, it's a story yeah. about your first dog. Yeah, this has been fun. I, I've been hunting a long time and kind of decided it was time to get a dog. And so I'm along that journey of everyone's probably, you know, made the same mistake or the same mistakes I did, but I'm experiencing fresh right now. So that's kind of been fun. And I didn't, I didn't know right away I was going to be featured in the magazine until Todd swung by and, you know, showed me the prints. So I was like, whoa, I, whoa, okay, let's do it. Yeah, put it in there, man. This is great. 
so, I haven't seen it yet, so I, I assume it turned out fantastic uh, it, as it always. It's terrific, and and um, it features Rachel. How could it not be well, fantastic? And and Luke and, and Luke. So tell us about Luke. Yeah, so Luke is my Deutschstrattner. He's about two and a half years old now, um, and it's. Man, it's been quite the experience. I should say Lukey Bear, as he's affectionately <laughs> known. I thought that's, that's my saying, isn't it? I did. Lukey Bear. I see him every day in the office. No, he's a, he's a really good dog. Um, I Before this, I was mainly a duck hunter, um, and I went pheasant hunting once in a while with folks, and, you know, you really just can't pheasant hunt without your own dog. So I kind of made that transition where I wanted to get a versatile dog that I could pheasant hunt with, duck hunt with. And now it's almost backwards where I mainly pheasant hunt and duck hunt on the occasion just because my dog likes upland hunting so much so that's changed a lot in the past couple dogs of years. will do that to you <laughs> <laughs> gotta make the dog happy oh darn <laughs> so it's been fun we're a dog friendly workplace here so it was really great to be able to socialize my dog with a bunch of other dogs like any, any other day or any given day we have about six to twelve dogs here in the office so that's really fun and you know, just the like huge variety of breeds around here. So everybody's got their two cents of like what you should or shouldn't get. But um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, pointer flusher, it's really um. <laughs> Newfoundland. <laughs> got those too. We accept all dogs here. Um, yeah, so I ended up going with a versatile breed just because I was coming with that um, duck hunting background, but I also wanted to venture into uplands. So um, I'm pretty involved with my Pheasants Forever chapter, and like I said, they're kind of a walking poster board for Deutschstrathaars. And so they really... Um, I can vouch for that because I got to go on <laughs> one of Rachel's youth hunts with her chapter last year, and it was Drothar heaven down there. <laughs> I've never <laughs> seen so many Drothars in my life. Yeah, I think we were running like six of them that yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's a cool sight to see them tearing up the field like that. And like I, I, I researched so many dog breeds and, you know, looking at advantages and disadvantages of both and seeing, you know, what would be the best fit for me. And it just kept circling back that a Deutsch Drothar would be the right for my family. And, yeah, it's it's been really great. But, I mean, anyone who has a bird dog knows, you know, it takes a lot of time, effort, and energy to um, train them, work with them. But it's been, you know, such a great learning experience. And, I don't know, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been great. Yeah. Uh, so, so tell us about some of the, the stories. So every person you interviewed is kind of a chapter within Right. The yeah, book. there's 24 chapters. I include myself. I'm chapter 24, so you can ignore that one. But, <laughs> but there are 23 really interesting stories in there, and I tried to, tried to pick a really wide variety of people. So there are, like Rachel, there are first-time dog owners, and then there's guys like Tom Dockin, who's well-known mm -hmm. and has been mm -hmm. doing it for 40-some 40, 40 years. Ron Cher is in the book. Obviously, he's well-known to a lot of the Pheasants Forever people. Uh, and there are several people with their first dogs, first-time dog owners. There are people who, well, Julia, who got into hunting specifically because she got a dog. The dog dragged her into the sport. Not really kicking and screaming, but dragged her into yeah. the sport. So Ren. So yeah, Ren. If, if Julia, we're talking about Julia Schrenkler, and yep. she was in the spring issue of the Pheasants Forever Journal. Right. Um, so um, you can read a little bit about Julia, and then you can see her in the um, in the Pheasant Dogs book. Yep. Uh, what, what are some of the other folks that jump out to you as interesting stories because i'm sure it was like you know you you, you watch those movie um 
previews and they say, oh, I laughed, I cried. It was a triumph of the human spirit. There, yeah. that, that could have been like the... the a triumph of the canine spirit. Right, it, that yeah. could have been a, a quote from the back of your book. Yeah, right? well, that was the idea, you know, as I was putting the book together and listening to the stories, I, I knew going in there were going to be sad stories, there were going to be funny stories, really heartwarming stuff. And as... You know there are dogs in this book now that are that are no longer with us. Mm-hmm. You know, so ultimately this book has kind of turned into a tribute to certain dogs too, which I hadn't anticipated going into the project. And I love that fact that people can pick up this book now and go, "There's my dog." Yeah, There's and I, I see uh, uh, making eye contact with Jared. Yeah, and, Jared and has one of those I'm, stories. I'm trying not to shed a tear over here. I just looked at it the other night, to be honest with you. Um, I've got my copy at home, and my my mom actually just flew in, and Jackson, my English pointer, was kind of adopted from my parents since they retired, and um, you know we're doing a lot of traveling and whatnot. And Jackson was in there, and my mom was just all up in tears. You know, he looked so happy flying through the fields at my house. But the one that the one that really hits home for me is is Coda the Lab, which was the other which was the other dog preview or, or breed preview you did in there for me. And Coda um, Coda ended up passing away. Um, she had a tumor on her spleen that burst and the dog, I mean, she basically bled out at our house is what it was. And as gruesome as that sounds, you know, we, I brought her to the vet right away. We had about 20 minutes with her to say goodbye and put her down, but this would have been her eighth year. Um, she was just a hell of a dog, you know, just great, great at waterfall, great at upland, uh, pheasants and rough grouse and woodcock were kind of my thing. And, um, you know, every time I look at that, especially the, the front cover, anytime, you know, you see, see a lab and that one looks kind of like her, that's not her on the front, but, um, you know, anytime I, I look that up and, uh, I think the, the picture in the book is a picture of me with her in Coming front of through me, the corn. Yeah, running down, running down a, <clears throat> a food plot at my house, yeah. uh, actually right next to all the nesting cover that we have there. And it, uh, yeah, it just, it, it brings me back quite a bit. So I, I really appreciate when you, when you started talking about the tribute, I think you could see my tone and, and face yeah. know, change a little yeah. bit. So well, I, and, you I know, really appreciate it. You, you bring up the cover that that dog is no longer with us either. Oh, there that you go. dog isn't, um, Brian Lynn lost Kona who's featured in the book. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Coda Kona Bach is the, is the cover dog. Uh, she's no longer with, I mean, there's, you know, we go into this knowing that these dogs probably are are not going to survive us, right? And this was like a year and a half ago most of these pictures were taken. Yes, yep. Yeah, most of the pictures, some of them come from further back. I've got a bunch of dogs in there that are my dogs in my chapter that are long gone, but just since the book came out, some of these dogs I got to meet, play with, hunt with, Mm-hmm. They're just not with us anymore. So uh, I knew going in that it was going to be a tears and laughter kind of thing. In fact, that's the Gene Hill had a book called Tears and Laughter. It was dog stories. And that's kind of the phrase that kept recurring in my mm. head as I was putting this together is, <clears throat> excuse me, we have we have lots of fun stories. There's some really, really funny stories. And then there's some really sad stories. But as, you know, Bob Chula is one of the chapters in the book. He has English setters. Um, he also had golden retrievers and, you know, he just very succinctly said it, that's the price we pay for their unconditional love, for the work they do for us in the field, for the mm-hmm. price we pay is we have to watch them go. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, we know going in when we get these dogs, chances are pretty good. We're going to have to watch them decline. So, and I know when everybody listens to this, that's, that's what they're going to be thinking is they, they can relate. Mm-hmm. And, you yeah. know, that's, that's what you sign up for as a dog owner. And, and, 
Coda wasn't my wasn't our first dog in our family, but she was my my first hunting dog. Right, you know, yeah. and I trained her all by myself. And it's funny because we've got a we've got about a seventeen week old oh. pup at home, Luna. right, Luna. And oh, uh, I haven't met this one. She's yeah, you have to you have to come over sometimes. She's very <laughs> feisty. Um, I was retrieving with her. She was out in the water the other day in the ice cold water. So I thought that was a that was a good start. She just kind of tiptoed in, was you know grabbing the bumper and whatnot. But I kind of relate it to kids, you know, like. Uh, like the first, the first dog I got, I mean, I was just so focused on training so hard with her every day for that, you know, short amount of time because her short attention span. Um, and then, you know, my, my second dog now I've got, I've got two kids and it's just like kids, right? You, mm-hmm. you do really, you do, do the, all the right things with the first one and you're all concerned and, and worried about it. And the second one, you're just like, nah, they're going to, cr- they're going <laughs> to, they're going to cr- crawl up the stairs. I don't think they're going to fall down them and just let them go. And I've kind of done that with Luna, but I've, I started to get into training now that this, uh, uh, depressing winter is just about <laughs> over with. So, but it, it's funny though, cause you know, Luna compared to what, what Coda was. And, you know, you, you try not to compare and contrast, especially like your first bird dog. Right. But, um, a, she's a firecracker. Um, I mean, she won't leave, she won't leave Jackson alone. She's always looking, always looking up in the sky. Maybe she'll be a good, good one for uh, duck dogs book. If that's the next there one coming is out. It, is she a lab? She's a lab okay. and she's always looking up at uh, cranes and geese and <laughs> swans, and everything that are flying over our house right now. Cause we live in a big wetland area. So it's, uh, it, I don't know. It's just neat to compare and contrast. What What are some of the, you know, tears and laughter, right? Yeah. What, what are What are some of the other laughter moments in this book that oh, uh, well, okay, Dean, stick out? Dean Dawson uh, is one of the chapters in the book. He's labs and golden retrievers, and, and he told just a hilarious story about, well, it didn't start out hilarious. One of his golden retrievers got into a knockdown, drag-out fight with a raccoon mm. in a cattail slough. Mm. And he ultimately he had to go in and wade in and separate them, and he's trying to deal with a, a raccoon, a, a referee. Know, a, yeah, and he's and he said, "I'm over the top of my, you know, he's mm. got hip boots on. I'm over the top of those. I'm covered in mud." Finally, he gets the dog and the coon separated, and he kills the coon. The coon was already not in great shape, but mm-hmm. his dog is bleeding, and its nose is all cut up. And he drags the dog out, and he throws the coon up on the bank, and he checking his dog out and okay he looks like he's okay he's going to be all right and they start walking back towards the truck said we got about 200 yards down the dog turns and bolts back to this raccoon (laughs) lifts his leg on it Turns around, and walks back. No walks back. kidding. Dog went and peed on the raccoon. Really? <laughs> I had to think about it for a minute. You what know, a send off. Two hundred yards. It's like, all Take right, that. I got one final message for you, raccoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there are stories like that. Uh, Cecil Bell had a has a dog. Cecil Bell is an old old friend of mine. In fact, Cecil was one of the original um, board members of Pheasants Forever hmm. in the very first the early eighties. Yeah, huh. early eighties. And he has a couple of dogs in the book. He's had many dogs, but Brick is a rescue. She's mostly Labrador, but you can see there's other stuff in her. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's got kind of a curly tail, and she's got longer hair down her back than she should to be a purebred lab. But he rescued this dog from a really bad situation, a drug house situation. Didn't know it was, you know, he had no idea if she was birdie, if she could hunt or whatever, but he kept her for a, a long weekend and by the end of that he went no i'm turning i'm keeping this dog and i'm going to turn her into a bird dog but because of the situation she came out of 
which was not good. She had a lot of separation anxiety, and he made the mistake of putting her in his bedroom and <laughs> leaving her for a couple hours. And when he came back, this dog had shredded a memory, a king-size memory foam mattress into pieces no bigger than a half dollar. Mm. <laughs> he oh. said the, the bedroom was absolutely full of little teeny pieces of memory foam. <laughs> and the dog's sitting there looking at him. And he, that dog has actually destroyed car insides. and other, She doesn't like to be left alone. Mm. So, you know, again, she came from a bad situation. It's really tough. To, mm-hmm. You don't know what happened to that dog in the past. But to his credit... I hunted with her twice, uh, three times now, and what a hunting machine that dog is. She is a retrieving fool. She doesn't miss a bird. I mean, she is crazy. Close, close worker, I close, would assume. Close worker. Yeah, she doesn't like to get. <laughs> she doesn't like to get too far from out, out from underfoot, actually. Yeah. So, but th- that's another one that's funny. And then there's, you know, Kevin Orthman has Brock Francais, which is not a common breed. Right. Uh, they're a little like short hairs. You know, they're they're looks wise. Right. They look right. a little bit like a short hair. They're maybe a little stockier, a little blockier yep. looking. Yep. But he told a story about pheasant hunting up here in Minnesota. He's from Tennessee, but he uh, he told a story about this um, <clears throat> his dog, his first Brock. He's had two now. His first one running through a field, jumping over a fence, a barbed wire fence. And he said, as it cleared the fence, I saw it physically lock up on point. Hmm. It's in the air. It lands stock still on the ground. There's a rooster right there. It gets gets up. Kevin kills it, and he's got that rooster on his wall. He said, it's my favorite memory ever. Wow. This dog locked that's, up, that's pretty saw cool. the bird on the ground, and physically locked up. He said it was the funniest looking thing to see it land stock still, just like a statue. So there's lots of little anecdotes in there like that that just make you, you know, laugh, whatever, smile. Right? Smiles are good enough. Well, and, and you know, folks know uh, Tom and Tina Dock, and we've had them on the podcast. Uh, they're really well known from Pheasant Fest. They're both in the book. Yes, they are. And yep. it, with with typical Tom and Tina banter. Yep, yep, yeah. Tina's uh, the the lifeblood of that place. She's a she's a fun person to be around. So Tom is too. Don't get me wrong. But right. Tom, you know, he, this is not a how to book. By the way, we really should point that out. It is not. A, this is not how to train. It's not a dog. Training book, yeah. No. It's but. When you spend three hours sitting talking with Tom Dockin, you're going to learn a lot of stuff. So there's a lot of information in the book. You just have to, you know, it's intermixed with little stories and vignettes from people, which is how I wanted it. That right. uh, keeps it keeps it flowing. Well, you mentioned uh, Ron Shera, yep. host of um, the Flush, the television show Pheasants Forever is affiliated with and has been affiliated with since '05. Right. Um, and, and that chapter was tears and laughter as well sure yeah well he, ron's another one who you know it's it i, I should say it, probably a half a dozen people were in tears telling me stories mm. in this book you know uh and, and I it's not all that. sad stories no, it's, no. some of it's about very, the love they feel very heartwarming stories and they're yeah. just fondly remembering these dogs but ron has some stories in there he lost one dog in the field you know it, it passed away during a hunt uh but he's since turned it around with the, with three ravens now. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize there had been three ravens till I sat down and talked with Ron. If I had done the math, I probably could have figured it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's really been doing shows for, for yeah. 30 years, so <laughs> that's a little long-lived for your average field dog. Um, but, yeah, Ron had some just phenomenal stories, sad and happy. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't remember the name of the person, but there's a... Um, um, 
Princess Di connection oh, yeah. too, right? <laughs> yeah, Pete Hudson. Yeah, Pete's a friend of mine. He's a photographer. He's actually a great photographer, but he's professionally, he's a wildlife biologist. Um, he's actually the director of life sciences at Penn State University. Hmm. He's in charge of their entire wildlife biology and other life sciences program out there. He's Scottish, and he grew up in Scotland, <clears throat> did his doctoral thesis on red grouse, spent a lot of time searching for much like uh, it, we'll bring up Aldo Leopold at some point too. We have to get to that. But uh, Pete used dogs to locate birds on the nest, hatchlings, adult birds. And at one point, I think he had 28 dogs in his kennel Whoa. that were all research dogs hmm. used for scientific purposes. Grad students were caring for some of them and whatnot, but his dogs were trained to a standard that it's, it's almost unheard of. I mean, I've never come across anybody who had dogs that would physically touch the chick with their nose and hold it in place while he was banding other chicks. So these dogs would, were trained to locate birds and go out and physically hold them in place with such a light touch that they didn't harm the bird. He said well, that was first and foremost really? is that the dog can't hurt the bird. And, I, and it's, it's I've a, got this glazed. Bob's looking at me. I got this glazed over look on my face right now, just listening to this. It's it's astounding the level that he had his dogs trained to. And he used short hairs, German short hairs. He used English pointers and some English setters. But German short hairs, Bob will be happy to hear, were his favorite breed. So <laughs> he has uh, he has Vieslas now. He has Hungarian Vieslas now because after he's he he got. Here, he lives in, in Pennsylvania now, as I said. He decided he liked the looks of the Vieslas, so that's why he went that way. Aesthetics. Yeah. <laughs> so, but he also, as, as you brought up, he had a royal connection. Because he was in Scotland, he, got, he became very friendly with the gamekeeper at Balmoral Ca uh, Castle, where the queen does all of her red grouse and pheasant hunting. Hmm. And so he got to run his dogs at Balmoral, at the castle, many times over the years, and ultimately got invited to run his, his pointers for the queen. The queen has labs, you know, and they're, if you've ever seen pictures of the queen's labs, they're all these stocky, way overweight dogs. Don't look like they should be out <laughs> in the field at all, but she loves her labs. So whenever they would do rough shooting, walk-up shooting, so not out of the the shooting blinds, not driven grouse, but mm. when they would walk up birds, Pete would get the call and he'd come and run his, his pointers for the Queen, Prince Charles. Uh, he spent so much time ultimately at Balmoral that he got to dance with Lady Di mm. in, in the castle. He knew the... the really? Uh, yeah, he knew William and Harry when they were little kids. <laughs> you know, he, he knew them when they were basically five and six. He said they were hellions, so... <laughs> <laughs> running around the castle so yeah uh he he came here he loves it here he's not going back to scotland he goes back occasionally does he still get invited back oh yeah he goes back really yeah he goes back he's got some great pictures wearing kilts and stuff nice <laughs> i wonder but, if he ever needs it like somebody to go yeah I, i've been I'd, I'd put on a kilt and run some bird dogs. <laughs> you are <laughs> what you are last on a long long list, list? yeah i would imagine <laughs> i just find the fact that like he's got dogs the, you know those dogs train well enough they'll go and actually push push a chick i mean we're talking a chick 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 yeah, yeah before they fledged yeah down with its nose and hold it there hold so that it. they could band it or do research yeah. and then 
and then move on. I yeah, find that pretty fascinating. And, well, and he said these dogs would, I asked him, how long would they have to hold the bird there? And he said, well, however long it took to process the bird before, sometimes it'd be 10, 15 minutes. Oh, goodness. You know, that this dog would just sit there with its nose on a chick, physically contacting you. It's just crazy. What do you think? Is Luke approaching Luke's that? ready for yeah, that. Luke just tried to kill a goose in the parking lot about <laughs> half hour ago. So, not there That's yet. That's what that honking was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've never even heard of dogs trained to that standard before. That's completely, you know. And interestingly enough, we'll bring up Aldo Leopold again. Pete, being a wildlife biologist, obviously is very familiar with Aldo Leopold, but he was unaware that Leopold ran German short hairs as research Mm -hmm. dogs, mostly for prairie chickens Mm. is what Leopold used them for in central Wisconsin. But uh, And that, you know, if you want to segue into Ken Blomberg's chapter in the book, there's a, another Leopold connection. Um, Ken has for 40 years had O'Plain kennels in central Wisconsin, and he breeds German shorthairs. Well, he would, they were doing some pedigree research on a completely unrelated dog, and he knew some guy who had just the most massive pedigree of, of German shorthairs, supposedly in the country. And he was looking for a connection to Aldo Leopold's dog, Gus which was a very, that dog was a very famous research dog, and Leopold loved that dog. There's lots of photos of Leopold pheasant hunting with him, grouse Mm -hmm. hunting and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And the researcher that Ken had talked to, um, looking for, he was looking for pedigree stuff on another dog, supposedly related to Gus. Nobody thought Gus had ever been bred. And the the researcher got back to him and said, well, did you realize that, that your dogs come out of that line? And he went, out of what line? Out of Gus. Hmm. It, Ken said, my dogs all all these years have been related to Gus. They've come out of Gus's blood. And he went, yeah. The the most remarkable thing of all is Ken's a, a member of the Aldo Leopold Foundation. He's a huge Leopold guy. And he also has sold dogs unknowingly, un, unwittingly to Aldo Leopold's grandson, great-grandsons. Wow. From his line that are connected all the way back to Aldo's dog, Gus. And nobody knew it until this is fairly <laughs> well, recent. That's pretty awesome. It's serendipitous. Yeah. Talk about a crazy coincidence. Yeah. They talk about six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah. When you, when yeah. you add, add dogs to the mix, it's like three degrees. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> so that's one of the – and that story's in the book. Those are the kind of tales that are in there. There's just a lot of – you know, you never know. You sit yeah. down with people to talk about dogs, and who knows where the conversation's going to lead. That's how I went into it, too. I did not. I had some prepared questions, but mostly it's just, let's just talk about your dog. So as I teased in the opening, um, this is a, a over-under double-barrel podcast where we're going to talk pheasant dogs, the book, and we've been talking about that. But it's also, <clears throat> excuse me, it's also the, um, the introduction of our annual Bird Dogs for Habitat campaign, which we've run. This will be the seventh time. Uh, and it runs every year in April, and it's it's basically a bird dog popularity contest <laughs> for a good cause. Right? So, so you know what what folks may not think of pheasants forever in the same way they think about their uh, you know the American Red Cross or the Heart Society or Diabetes Society or your local church. We're a nonprofit organization that you can make a tax-deductible gift or leave us in your will or all sorts of things, just like any other charity. And Bird Dogs for Habitat was created seven years ago to 
sort of remind folks that, hey, you, you know, at tax time, you could leave us a gift and it can be tax deductible. And what we did with Bird Dogs for Habitat is wrap it around everybody's emotional connection and love <laughs> of, of their bird dog breed. So when you make a donation through Bird Dogs for Habitat, every dollar you donate equates to one vote for your favorite breed of dog. So if you would like to, um, you, you can go to birddogsforhabitat.org. You can even sign up and become a member of Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever, and your $35 through that site becomes 35 votes. Rachel's smiling because she knows that her votes would go toward, <laughs> towards the, the Deutsch Drothar. I'll put a plug Deutsch Drothar, everybody. They're unsure. <laughs> go for the wiry Um so, so this campaign uh, kicks off uh, April 1st and, and runs the entire month of April. But as I mentioned, this will be the uh, seventh year, and we'll look at the statistics here for a moment. Vishlas have won twice really yeah wow so there's a big time supporter of pheasants forever that always makes an, a real generous donation on behalf of the vishlas in the first <laughs> couple of years that uh that was enough to win um we irish shedder has won once wow the as you would expect the labrador retriever is on the in the win column they have won once america's dog uh the german short-haired pointer has won once and then last year, it's closely related to Rachel's. Yeah, I'll still take it. That's uh, a victory. The uh, the w- <laughs> German wire hairs uh, won the the voting contest, and and you know we we talk, call it bird dogs for habitat for a reason, right? With with our model, um, since 1982, 90 cents on the dollar, every dollar we raise, 90 cents on the dollar has gone into the ground to create habitat. We're the most efficient national nonprofit conservation organization in the country. And if you're listening um, and you have a, uh, an affinity for a breed of bird dogs and you ha- might have a couple extra bucks at tax time, please go to Pheasants Forever website, birddogsforhabitat.org, and uh, drop it on, their fa- on your favorite breed. Uh, we'll come back to the campaign just in a moment. Uh, as you um, wrote this book about different breeds, about pheasant dogs, how important was it for you to have a variety of different breeds? Well, I tried to get as many as I possibly could. Of course, you know, you just can't. <laughs> right. You can't do it because there are literally, I think I did a rough estimate that there's 182 breeds that i could figure had been used for pheasant hunting you know and some of them i i I can't even recall the the names i mean there's a lot of european dogs that i couldn't pronounce the names i've never (laughs) seen one i don't know what they looked like um but you i think we got a pretty good representation because there's you know it, it was important to get a lot of pointing breeds in there and a lot of flushing breeds in there so um I don't, you know, I, I haven't counted. I don't know how many breeds I got. So there's, <laughs> you know, some folks can make generalizations about their owners of certain types of breeds. Oh, you're not going to hit me with this question. Well, I'm, just seeing, I'm just wondering <laughs> if you're going to stick your neck out and say, oh, well, German short hair owners are the wackos. 
Any any generalizations you want to make about certain breeds? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's smart. That's smart. Discretion is the better part of value. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you different. I have questions. people. I have too many friends with too many different breeds. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I don't want to get. I don't want to get disinvited it, on too many. It hunts. is entertaining though how productive people are of oh. their breeds. Oh yeah, you can. You know, the old saying is, you can say anything you want about my wife and kids, but don't badmouth my dog. <laughs> so. What about what about like? Like looks, similarities between dog and owner. You find any of that in the book at all? Sure, yeah. I I kind of, when I was photographing Emmy Marrier, who's also another Pheasants Forever person, uh-huh. right, with her, her flat coat, they both had long flowing hair. This is why it just... <laughs> It just hit me now. They they look a little bit alike. Yeah, they have this long flowing hair, and I photograph them on a windy day, so that's probably why. Yeah, I, I, we've talked about that before. Like wanting to do a Facebook contest of who know, looks the most like their dog. Our members and their dogs next to each other in photos. Put that on Facebook, and whoever looks the most, you know, wins a prize. Because <laughs> I swear there are, you know, with a some lot breeds. Yeah, with some breeds, you do get that. I didn't see that a lot in pheasant dogs, but I, you know, I know people that look like pugs. <laughs> <laughs> I've had my wife mention me before, like our dog dogs will sleep on the bed a lot. They just do. They're house dogs and field dogs, you know. And the the English pointer, especially, he likes to he likes to sleep on it, sleep on his back, and just kind of veg out. And my wife would be like, "Man." You guys, you guys kind of look the same. Like, I don't, I don't even know, I don't know what to say about yeah, that. I'm respond? not sure if that's if that's good or bad, but neither here nor there, I guess. I'm just glad I don't have a pug. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to get those resemblance remarks. <laughs> With this audience, I felt safe bringing that breed up. Yeah, pugs. You're not. I'm not going to hear too much backlash on that one. It's not bad mouth and short hairs, I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Pheasant dogs. um, So our quail forever listeners are are out there wondering, is there a quail dog book in the future? Yeah, we've talked about it. The publisher and I have talked about turning this into a series, and that's one I would love to do, frankly, because it would get me down south where the quail are for (laughs) for some of the colder months up here. You probably saw some birds, I would imagine, when you were just down there. Yeah. Were you in Arizona? Yeah, Arizona, New Mexico. uh, Lots of gambles. I was hoping to photograph scaled quail, and I never came across any that I could photograph, so... Um, But, yeah, there's there's quite a few quail in southern Arizona, as people know. Um, Photographing dogs... You know, we we all take photos of our bird dogs, post them on Instagram, right? It, it, give us some coaching on how to make um, our own personal photos of our bird dogs that much better. You know, there's there's some easy tips if if you're at all comfortable behind your camera. The very first thing you want to do is you want to get down. You want to be low. You want to be at eye level with the subject. If you want a hero shot, if you're trying to get, like the cover of the book is a good example where I was literally two inches off the ground with the lens of the camera, shoot up at him a little bit, tends mm. to make things look a little more impressive and mm-hmm. imposing and whatnot. But you always want to be at eye level or a little below. People still take photos of their dogs and they're standing up, shooting down at their dog. Right. And it's just, that's the way to make the dog look tiny and insignificant. Um, so that's the very, that's the easiest one to do is just don't stand over your dog and take pictures. I also, when it comes to bird dogs, I like to see, um, 
the birds in the background. I know a lot of people like to put a pile of birds in front of their dog and have the dog sit, mm-hmm. you know, sit in front of that pile of birds. That's it's fine. You know, there's a place for those photos, but if you want the dog to be the center of attention, it's really good to you know hang a few birds on the fence behind them, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and have the dog in the foreground. Now that goes counter to the the book cover, which <laughs> where the pheasant's the closest thing to the camera. But that's kind of a unique photo. Yeah, so. you've got, on the cover, you have all the components that make it perfect as a cover. As a cover, You, right. you have the, the lab retrieving the rooster in the foreground, and you can even see the hunter in the background. I mean, that's the yeah. magic of this is that you have the entire scene. Right, and that was set up, you know, I, I went out knowing I wanted to take this photo. Unfortunately, I was on a hunt with a bunch of friends. All of them had dogs. Mm. And so I tried this shot with uh, Brittany's, with uh, Golden Retrievers, with Yellow Labs, with Black Labs. This is the one that turned out by far the best. The, the lighting on that, too, is just, you look at the colors on that rooster. Yeah. You know, yeah. well, kind of offset the right... by the lab, too. It's just that it's beautiful. It was the right day for it, too. Everything came together, so that was a, that was always going to be a good. I knew as soon as I took that photo or that series, it's from a series that, they they had potential as a cover for a book so mm. or a magazine too so uh, you know the number one most popular breed of dog in the country <laughs> it also happens Again, to be yeah. the number one most popular breed of dog within the pheasants forever membership is the the labrador and specifically the black lab right yep. and i'm thinking about how tough it is to get a good photo of a black lab yeah what what are, what are some tricks well there? you you can't <clears throat> people tend to if they've got a, a dslr and they're trying to take pictures if they put it in auto mode and you try to take a picture of a black dog on a bright day the camera's always going to expose for the background unless you're super super tight and so what you're going to have is a black lump and a well-lit background and you're not even probably going to be able to see the dog's eyes so in this case I probably overexpose this two full stops. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's just knowing your camera. Modern phone cameras are getting so good now, you can do a lot of this stuff in a, a phone cam. Mm-hmm. You, that wasn't true even five, even three years ago, that wasn't true. Um, but that's something you want to be aware of is get your camera out of auto mode. Don't, don't put it on green box mode and then expect, because the camera's taking light from the entire scene not just from the dog and you need to expose for the dog black dogs are just ter- black bears are the same way they're mm-hmm. terrible terrible to try to photograph in fact they're worse because they get beady little lifeless eyes too so. well <laughs> and they might want to eat you too right yeah don't worry, <laughs> don't worry about that too much um, it's in the back of your mind yeah, yeah but yeah um the other thing you can also really pay attention to if you're photographing your dog you just want your photos to get immediately better is get all the weeds and stuff out from in front of them you still see photos where people have got it's really a nice photo Mm -hmm. but there's some you know foxtail crossing right across the dog's face just small attention to detail backgrounds are even more important you want to look at the background and make sure there's not an outhouse in the, in the back yeah. of the picture or a telephone pole growing out of the dog's head you know mm. that kind of thing shift your your angle on it a little bit so you get the most pleasing background scene too um, that can really ruin a picture i mean seriously i've seen some phenomenal pictures 
And then, well, look at there's porta johns in the back mm-hmm. in the background of that right. photo. <laughs> Why did you do that? Or you know, there's a you know a, a, a farm silo. You're out in a, a beautiful scene where if you just shifted over a few feet, mm-hmm. now that silo actually becomes this element in the back. But if it looks like it's grown right out of the dog's head or the one of the people in the photo, if it looks like it's grown right out of their head, you just ruined you just ruined the photo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You can clone some of that stuff out if you're good yeah. with, with software. You can, you know, you can fix things like that, but why not get it right in the camera so you don't? And that's my goal always. Every time I pick up a camera, my goal is to have as little time behind the p- computer screen as possible mm. when I'm processing the photo. What about, like, action shots? You know, instead of getting, like, a, a blur of your dog running through the field? Sometimes blur sh- I love motion blur in, in shots, but that's another technique. You have to learn how to do that, right? You have to learn how to drag a shutter and, and really... Yeah, that's getting pretty college-level photography stuff. You just need to make sure your shutter speeds are high. Okay. The, the rule of thumb is... You, you want it to be, if you're shooting with a 200-millimeter lens, you want to have your shutter speed be at least 1 200th of a second or faster. The faster you can get that shutter speed, the better you're going to be able to stop that and get the, you know, the, the dew flying off the dog and that, that kind of stuff. So <clears throat> those aren't, you know, that's basic photography 101 that you can, mm-hmm. you can use for anything. In fact, I should say... Getting low, getting eye contact with with the subject, all that stuff. It's true in animal photography. It's true in portrait photography. It's true in wildlife photography. You always want that bear <laughs> looking mm-hmm. at you. You don't want them looking, you know, 10 feet to your left. You want them looking right into the camera. So with dogs, that's easy to do because all you need is somebody behind you with a bag of treats or something you, you can get the, the ears perked and the eyes looking right at you and you yeah. do you do want a grizzly looking right at you yes when you're the always like yeah. some molasses okay. yeah. yeah yeah over <laughs> here yeah right Free here meal. right here there you go wolves the the more dangerous it is the more that you want that stare and that's probably like you know when i go on go on facebook on your page and and look at some of those photos and i can spend a lot of time just just creeping on your page looking at some of those <laughs> And I mean that with full respect. Thank you. <laughs> when, when you're looking at like you know uh, bears and moose and lynx and you know maybe not lynx but some of those big game animals you know like those things can easily kill you. And I don't know how far away you are with the camera. Maybe you're zooming in quite a ways I there. Carry, but I carry big lenses so I don't have to get, get dangerously close. Yeah. But yeah. sometimes you end up in those situations whether you want to or not. Yeah. You know, I find that I find that fascinating and just yeah. some of the. Uh, you know, whether it's a pheasant dog's book or just some of your photography in general that you're going out getting in places like the Southwest or Alaska or Canada, I, right. I just find it pretty pretty fascinating to look at. Yeah. Well, the, and like I said earlier, especially with those predators, you want that eye contact. You want that I could kill you <laughs> with a snap of a finger look in their eye. You know, just that you're you're another piece of meat to me that's the look you want from from a predator that's the look that those geese outside were getting Rachel's <laughs> dog earlier i just saw them cross the road out there in the background yeah, they're getting cocky we gotta yeah they're looking for it place. get luke out there is, I, now do you ever try to hunt and photograph at the same time or is that just too much to handle it's too much yeah. yeah i don't do it the gear the camera gear you know typically is bulky cumbersome and weighs as much as a gun would and i have to pick no, that's fair. Yeah, I have to choose one or the other. It's not. You can carry a pocket camera and take your after hunt shots and stuff, and I do when I hunt. You know, that's I carry a small camera and 
But if I'm seriously photographing for a purpose, you know, if I'm photographing, if I'm trying to create images I can sell, then, yeah, there's, I can't carry a gun at no, the same time. Yeah. You were asking the exact same line of questioning <laughs> that was in my mind because I was thinking, you know, Rachel, the, you know, the best time to hunt is that first hour and that last hour, right? The golden yeah. hour. It also happens to be the best lighting for photography. <laughs> it sure right? is. It's, so, yeah, it's not so, just the golden hour in pheasant hunting. It's the golden hour. How do you hour. decide, Keith? Well, it depends, you know, whether I want to eat that month or not. You know? <laughs> well, do you right? want to eat right? pheasants do I want, or do you want to make money? Exactly. How tired am I of eating pheasants? Would I like to buy a <laughs> steak every now and then? <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's it's a decision that I have to make. And it's just half the time I'm carrying a camera and I'm just giving up the hunt. But I'm not giving up the hunt either. I'm there. I'm a participant. And I get to see some really cool stuff through the lens that, you know, you might miss if you were, you know, focused so much on right. the bird. I yeah. can look at a whole scene and I can see what's going on, the smiles on people's faces and who's doing what with whose dog. And, you know, it's it's fun, actually. So that, that's I wouldn't I was, do it if it wasn't fun. I, I was thinking, you know, when I've photographed hunts as opposed to carrying a shotgun, there's definitely... Um, components that I love and enjoy. It's just a different it reward. Is. Yeah, right? it is. It is. It's a, well, and it's a reward that you can share. The, sh- the hunts are, f- for me, I don't know if this is true for everybody, but it's a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough to explain how wonderful that experience is, but I can share photos. I can't share that. Well, I can. I, I guess I can share that pheasant with somebody. Sure. Um, but I can't share the memory very well without the camera. And so, with a camera in my hand, I can now. I I went on this hunt with Rachel and her youth group, and it was just a hoot watching the <laughs> the kids. A lot of them had they'd never killed a bird before. No, I think two of them. It was their first bird that morning. And so they really they cool killed a bird, and they killed a bird in front of the camera. I got to get the kids shooting at the bird and it was big old rooster got up right at their feet and i have all these kids rachel's in the shot screaming rooster because <laughs> that's the thing with these kids they don't want to shoot you know mm. they don't want to make a mistake so you have to convince them it's <laughs> shoot in your head you're like you know on on this on a similar vein here i think one of the things that i'd like to bring up to you and i'm sure people listening um, ha- have done it before many times, but I- I'm guilty of it, uh, just as anybody is, but I don't take enough photos. Yeah. I go out and do like, I, I get stuck in the stages of a hunter and I just want to follow the dog and I, I want to, I want to get a few shots off and, and try to harvest some food to bring home. And then at the end of the day, I end up taking some crappy photo, crappy photo of my dog. Cause I'm not paying attention to what's going on. They take planning and it yep. takes commitment. Yep. You do have to say when you enter the field today, I'm going to create some memories and, with the camera too. And that's one of the things <laughs> I think I've taken from this book is like, when you look at, uh, when you look at my chapter in Coda, who's passed away, I, myself, I didn't, I didn't take enough. I didn't take enough photos of the time that we had together. Um, and I feel, I honestly feel a little bit guilty about that. Yeah. And that's not going to happen with, with this next dog. You can't have too many pictures of no. your, of your family or your, you no. know, your friends and your pets. And so yeah. I guess my, my, uh, coming out of all this, out of this podcast, I would tell people like, keep your dogs close, keep your cameras close and make sure you're taking some, 
uh, photos that, you know, really justify your experience in the field. So you're, you're heading right where I was heading for the, uh, for, as we, uh, head towards the close. I, I said head towards like three different times. <laughs> um, so I'll remind folks that we're, we're talking with Keith Crowley, author of Pheasant Dogs, the book. It will be in the fall 2019 and spring 2020 banquet packages for all Pheasants Forever chapters around the country. So attend your local banquet, and you can see Pheasant Dogs' book uh, this fall and spring. If you can't wait till then, you can purchase the dog the dog. You can purchase the book. You, could get, you, get you the, probably get a dog, too. You, you can purchase the book at pheasantdogsbook.com. That's right. Yep. And uh, I'll remind folks that we are running for the month of April, Bird Dogs for Habitat. Um, and as I just tease that, we'll close this episode with uh, kind of words of wisdom, as, as, as Jared talked about right before we, we went into this about, hey, let's take some, some photos. Make sure you take enough photos of your dog. Uh, I want to ask, as we, as we get to the end here, Keith, I want to know a little bit about your own dogs. Yeah. And then <laughs> any words of wisdom based on what you learned from talking to all these people about their dogs. And then if, if Jared and Rachel have any words of wisdom. So um, I'll remind birddogsforhabitat.org. Our partners are Rough Lind Kennels, Perina Pro Plan Dog Food, Irish Setter Boots, uh, the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association, NAVDA, and Project Upland is our official media partner. And look for the Pheasants Forever Facebook page the entire month of our, uh, April for prizes from those partners. Roughland Kennels, Perina, Irish Sitter Boots, NAVDA, and Project Upland. We're going to have all sorts of prizes run in the month of April on Pheasants Forever's Facebook page. And uh, we've got incentives to get you to donate uh, we've got a special Bird Dogs for Habitat decal and some membership offers that will be running at birddogsforhabitat.org, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram all the month of April. Historically, this has generated $50,000 for our Habitat mission um, through one vote at a time mm-hmm. um, and our partners. So please, please uh, consider getting involved and throwing a vote towards your favorite breed. And with that long-winded commercial, I'll go back to, uh, we'll start with Keith. Um, tell us a little bit about your own bird dogs throughout your life. Because I know you've been, like you mentioned, you've been a pheasant hunter since the age of 12. Yeah, and yeah. you didn't do that alone. There was a canine in front of you. Yeah, well, not to start. You know, to start with, I did it like a lot of people did. I tagged along on hunts, and I was the bird dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as, I, as soon as I saw my first real bird dog, pheasant dog in action i knew i had to have one so by the time when i was 17 i got a springer english springer briar black uh black and white springer he was way too good for me you know i didn't know what i was doing it's amazing he did as well as he did in the field that dog was brilliant to this day is the only dog i've had a pheasant dog that learned how to cut roosters off Mm -hmm. to get ahead of them he would, and he'd do it in cornfields, but he'd do it mostly in on fence lines. He would go charging out way out into a field and go way around, 
come back in two, three hundred yards ahead and push the birds back towards you. Magical. And, and that's wow. not something I taught him. I don't know where he learned it. I keep hoping I'm going to find a dog that does it. But it happened so many times that it wasn't an accident. Right. And people finally were comment. He's doing that on purpose. Yeah, he is. Huh. He knows that those birds are running. And he would get ahead of them and he'd push them back. Now, other people, I think John Edstrom actually talks about one of his dogs learned that too on its own mm. uh, in the book you know he talks about one of his setters learning to do that so i don't know where that comes from but i wish all dogs had that you know that chip in their brain when they, <laughs> when they came out uh i had another springer after that uh buddy another phenomenal pheasant dog that dog had the softest mouth in the world until one incident in iowa where he was about 10 he was really old uh, I shot a rooster back behind us. I didn't hit it very hard. <clears throat> I could tell it was coming down hot. And he charged off after it, and he went and got it, and I knew we weren't going to lose the bird because that dog didn't miss birds. And sure enough, he came back, but he only got about 50 yards from me, and then he sat down and with the bird in his mouth, and he sat, and he wouldn't come any closer. That had never happened before. Mm. And so I finally walked back to him, and I looked, and he had little blood spots all over his front legs, all over his brisket, all over his neck. That rooster had spurred the hell out of him, mm. and he had crunched it good. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, he crunched every rooster <laughs> yeah, good. To make sure it didn't uh -huh. happen again. But he, I, at my first instinct was somebody shot him. It looked like he'd been peppered oh, with, really? with, yeah, that's how, there were all these little blood spots. He was mostly white on the front and so you could just see all these little pinpricks it's like oh now i know what happened yeah. and now i know why he's got a hard mouth but he was still a phenomenal dog now i've switched to labs mostly because um they're self-cleaning in the field <laughs> i got tired of pulling cockleburs out of springer ears that's mm -hmm. all oh yeah we talked about that yeah. like oh, on a bad day he's got like four yeah <laughs> exactly you actually mentioned that. yeah on a bad day luke's got like 50,000. Exactly. Yeah. Wire-haired dogs, you know, they're Velcro on, on the hoof. So um, labs are pretty much self-cleaning. I've enjoyed the hell out of that. Plus, I also got into waterfowling quite a bit when I was doing the Macquarie book. Mm -hmm. uh, I did an awful lot of waterfowling, and it was just a natural switch to, to labs. So I had a black. Now I have a yellow. She's getting up there in age. I don't know if she's going to make one more hunting season or not. She was pretty gimpy the last mm -hmm. one. So, But... Uh, who knows? I might get talked into a versatile breed even. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> you can duck hunt in the morning and upland hunt. There you go. Late morning. When I'm ready, I'm going to come and talk with you again, Rachel. Oh, yeah. There's <laughs> a shout-out to our friends at NAVDA. Oh, yeah. Partners yeah. in bird dogs for yeah. Habitat. We'll hook you up with the right people. Yeah, I, I trained with them for I, I hunted for morning. years. One of my buddies had a griffin. You know, he had yeah. a, a wire-haired pointed griffin, and it was just a delightful dog in the field. But, again, he would spend hours in cleaning sessions after. <laughs> We're all at the restaurant, you know, having burgers or whatever, and he's still working on his dog. I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I like the short hair stuff. I'm, I'm enjoying labs. Maybe I'll... Maybe I'll swing to the dark side with you and John Zeman and your your GSPs. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> swing to the dark. <laughs> oh no, I, I I actually love because of this book. I got to hunt with every yeah. breed under the sun. Yep. So it, it, there's there's you know positives and negatives with every single breed. 
any breed break a stereotype that you expected or or really said opened your eyes like oh that, yeah, well, that with, is. well with short hairs i you know for example your short hairs work really close compared to Zeman's. yeah and Z- and Zeman's john Zeman's short hairs you know work way out there but john hunts off a horseback and yep. you know and he, so it was kind of a surprise to me that within the breeds Mm-hmm. You know, and Ken Blomberg's short hairs also work pretty close. You know, you can have, you know, just depends on the, the breeder and the training, I guess. Right. It's probably more training than anything. But I hadn't really considered that when I was, you know, when I was starting out in this book. It's like some of these some of these setters are going to be underfoot, mm-hmm. and some of these setters are going to be 250, 300 right. yards out. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what I got to experience. So uh, other than that, you know... I, I'm almost ready for another dog now, and I'm really torn. I have no idea what we're getting. <laughs> <clears throat> I went to a, a German wire hair uh, hunt test, and almost came home with a puppy because the damn things are so cute. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's cra- they're crazy cute, blue eyes. I mean, it was oh, just yeah. oh man. But you know, sounds like you're gonna have to reread your. I have your to. I'm gonna, dogs book. I, I am. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna have to call everybody up again and get all. The, so with with all the folks you've talked to, um, all the conversations you've had, you've got a tremendous amount of wisdom that's been shared with you. What nugget of wisdom would you offer to listeners uh, related to their bird dogs? Well, Tom Dockin had probably the most, you know, pithy point. He said, when you get a bird dog, that's now your responsibility to, to get out there and use it as a bird. You can't sit home with a bird dog. You owe it to the dog to be out there. Bird dogs are good for us at so many different levels. And the, the number one thing it does is it gets you off the couch. Mm, you have yeah. to be out there with that. You owe it to the dog. I mean, you owe it to yourself, too, because to train it, you, you can't do that from the couch. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that was probably the most um, wise short thing I heard in the course of the book was, yeah, and I hadn't really thought about it that way. It's it's a responsibility. Yeah, you know, it seems sort of obvious, yeah. but it's a good reminder. Yeah, right? yeah. I hadn't really ever put it into words in my own head. I guess. Yeah. By the way, I gotta say, I love the way you say "Pheasant Dogs" the book because that makes it sound like "Pheasant Dogs" the movie is going to be out. So, <laughs> <laughs> so That's your next if project. anybody if anybody <laughs> in Hollywood is listening, <laughs> "Pheasant Dogs" the movie I think <laughs> has a ring to it. <laughs> Well, we can always dare to dream, right? <laughs> Come who, on, who Project would, Yeah, what would be the feature? Uh, that, who, who knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> uh, any words of wisdom uh, from Rachel and, or Jared as we close out today? I guess I can throw the perspective of like a new, inexperienced dog owner that, you know, don't be intimidated, don't be afraid to talk to people, ask questions. You know, when I got Luke, I probably talked to 30 different breeders of a couple different breeds, so... Don't be afraid to reach out. Most dog breeders are so excited to talk about their dogs and give advice, even if they don't have puppies available. And then just kind of piggyback off what Keith said is really exposure is so good for your dog. So, you know, my goal, like Luke's first season, was to get him out 30 days. Mm. And I ended up getting like 32 in, I think. But it's, you know, just get him out there. That's the best thing you can do is just get him exposure to outside. And they learn so much on was their own. Was that 32 days of pheasant hunting with him? No, it was a mix of a lot of duck hunting. Oh, too. duck hunting too. And okay. A couple yeah, double but dip still, days. But yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. NABDA was an excellent resource for you with Luke too. Yeah, thanks for um, putting that out there. Uh, a good buddy of mine also trained with NABDA in northern Minnesota. And he, you know, really suggested them. And it was great to get 
um, Luke exposed to birds and just, you know, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Like I said, I probably stuck out like a sore thumb, like, hey, I don't know what's going on. But everybody was really nice, really welcoming and, you know, patient walking me through it. And they do, um, depending on the club, weekly training sessions. So you show up, bring your dog and people are out there to help you out and get your bird on some dogs. So, yeah, look up your local Nobda chapter. Jared, any final thoughts? Uh, well, first of all, Keith, I appreciate you coming in and sharing your thoughts about the book. And I myself am eternally grateful for sharing the story about my girl that's gone to a, a bigger field per se now. So um, I really appreciate it and being able to share that memory. And last thing I'll say is, you know, whether it's a pheasant dogs book at a at a banquet um, or the bird dogs for habitat campaign that's running throughout uh, the month of April. Um, you know, if you want to support the nation's foremost upland habitat conservation group and the places where bird dogs love to hunt, um, those are two great options for people to partake in. So appreciate you coming on and, and helping us cover all those different aspects. My pleasure. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, your your words of wisdom earlier, take photos, and, you know, absolutely yep. rings true. You never know when... You just never know. And everybody's got a decent camera in their pocket these days. Yeah. Phones yep. are so good at taking photos that, yeah, there's no excuse now. Yep. Create the memory while it's there. Yep. Yep. Don't, you know, we all get locked into, well, where's the next bird, right? <laughs> like, you know, the, the yeah. retrieve or the point, like, you know, take the Settle time. Down. Take the Settle time down. to take that photo that you will cherish forever. Keith, thank you very much for being here, but also for writing this book because it uh, it really does tell stories of you know dogs like Coda, um, you know dogs that are here today and they they might not be here tomorrow, and they have a really big place in our hearts. Absolutely, and they're it's my it, pleasure. I you know I always love working with pheasants forever too. You guys do fantastic work on behalf of conservation and habitat, so. It's nice to be involved. We have great chapters and great volunteers out <coughs> yes, there. Yes, you do. And uh, and bird dogs are a massive part of the entire recipe because of the love of a bird dog. It really inspires people to create habitat out there. So folks listening, um, you can purchase the book at Pheasants Forever Banquets this fall and spring. Uh, if you can't wait that long, and I don't blame you, you can purchase it at pheasantdogsbook.com, movie TBD. <laughs> uh, if you want to participate, uh, you know, maybe it's time to renew your membership. Maybe it's time to join. Or, you know, you got a little bit of money from uh, the tax man. Uh, please look up pheasant, I'm sorry, birddogsforhabitat.org. Um, our partners are going to match your donation. So Rufflin Kennels, Perina Pro Plan, Irish Setter Boots, Navda, and Project Upland. You make a donation, we're going to be able to go out and get it matched for you. And then on every dollar, 90 cents on the dollar, is going to get in the ground for Habitat. Birddogsforhabitat.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram all month long, month of April, and you can find out. Who's going to be the winning breed in 2019? We got Vishlas with two titles, Irish Setters with one, 
the Labrador Retriever with one, the German Short-Haired Pointer with one, and the German Wire-Haired Pointer with one. So that means all you English... Rachel's getting out her checkbook right now. No. I think Drahar's winning Drahar's English I just setters. saw all the zeros that she put behind that one, and oh, my God. Brittany's, <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of breeds that uh, can step up and, and help support habitat. Uh, thank you, Keith. For being here thanks for writing the book uh pheasant dogs the book <laughs> uh thanks for listening folks to on the wing with pheasants forever and quail forever we will see you well in the field this fall in the meantime get out there and plant some habitat thank you <laughs>